Hey guys, this is Ash. This is Shiashi. This is Maggie, and you're listening to We Are Resilient. All right, hey guys, and welcome. I'm a little bit nervous today. We're here at the Bardo Art Center at Western Carolina University doing our first ever live recording. Uh, that means there are people watching us right now, so I'm going to do my best to act natural and watch you guys. We are here because uh, November is Native American Heritage Month, and tonight is the reception for the MMIW exhibit at Western, and it's our one-year anniversary, so yay! yay. How are you guys feeling right now? I feel great. Um, I know that other people get a little nervous in front of people, but I think it's awesome that people want to come see us. Mm -hmm. um, like I said in our last episode, it always just feels like we're talking to the void. Like we're talking to yeah. each other on Zoom and it's hard to believe that people actually listen to what we're saying. <laughs> so I can't think of a better way to celebrate our one year anniversary. What about you, Ash? Yeah, I feel good. Um, Shio, Nagad, Oshizaluki, I'm glad you're all here with us. We're in this beautiful exhibit today with all these beautiful photographs. Uh, a lot of our local people are exhibiting here. And so it's just inspiring to see all the work that's being put into this movement. And I'm just glad that we're a small part of that and we can support the efforts to bring awareness to this epidemic. Can you guys believe it's been one year since we started? I really can't. The other day, Osh said it felt like, or it felt like it's been 10 years, but <laughs> I, I don't feel that way. I just feel like it's hard to believe we've been doing this for one full year. I think that's because we had so much preparation beforehand. It was months of just trying to get our story together. Our first episode, we couldn't use. It took us three hours. Yes. It took Osh about 15 minutes just to say, hey, hey guys, this is Osh. This is Osh. <laughs> <laughs> um, she actually just whispered to me when we were being introduced. She said, wait, what am I supposed to say? <laughs> uh, I can't believe it's been a year. I feel that we've shared so many stories over this past year. And we can't stop now. I feel that we've got the ball rolling. And sharing these stories are hard. It's hard to research them. But I feel that the work that we're doing and sharing these stories, because prior to this, I hadn't heard many stories of women going missing or murdered and injustice that they've served. So I think that I have learned a lot just in this past year. I know that I've grown as a Cherokee woman to be an advocate for the lost voices and those families who are suffering. So... I think that that's one of my purposes in life is just to be a voice. And I think that we yeah. are doing a good job in promoting awareness and promoting finding justice in the lack of police presence, the lack of investigations, all the things that we have discovered and learned this past year. And I hope that the listeners have also learned those things too. Like mm -hmm. Discrepancies still exist. Yeah, it's like we're learning together. Um, just over the course of the year, I learned a lot about the many indigenous tribes out there. You know, you hear about like the core few, but there's so many. And just to be able to have that platform and be able to share these different tribes and, you know, learning about them is really cool. I think you said the Blackfeet uh, did sign language. Yeah, they did. And that's something that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's awesome that we are able to use our platform to not only educate about such a serious issue, but also use our platform to educate about our people. Yeah. So when we started this podcast, really, it was just an idea to help bring awareness to MMIW in some capacity. And the fact that we are here and we were invited to do a live show and we're experiencing so much uh, support from the community, from the tribe, from friends and family, it just means that we're doing something right and doing something good. So um, Ash, 
I kind of dropped this idea on you on the bus during Right Path. Um, what were your initial thoughts about joining the podcast? Yeah, so we were on a field trip with our leadership program. It's a Cherokee culturally based leadership program, and we were on a field trip, I think, in Georgia. And she actually leaned over the seat. She said, Hey, I got an idea. And I was like, What's up? <laughs> Let's do an MMIW podcast because we were both true crime fanatics. Um, yeah, Maggie is too. And I said, Hey, that'd be a great idea because all the true crime podcasts that I listen to and all the stories, there's just not any stories out there that cover you know, um, indigenous women. Mm-hmm. They're just not out there. Yeah. And I said, Yeah, that'd be a great idea. And so I bought in pretty early and um, I'm glad I did. What about you, Maggie? I tend to drop crazy ideas on you all the time at work. Yeah, it's not uncommon for Shiashi to walk up to my desk and come up with something crazy. Like, hey, do you think I should go get my nose pierced on my lunch break? I'm like, <laughs> uh, maybe not. Um, so when you dropped this idea on me, I thought it was a great idea. Like Osh said, um, MMIW is not covered in hardly any of the podcasts Mm-mm. that I currently listen to. So I was on board right away, too. Yeah, and when they are covered... You know, it's not necessarily from an indigenous perspective, which I think is what's needed out there. We need more indigenous voices. Um, so since starting the podcast, we've had the opportunity to do MMIW presentations to different groups and organizations. And it's been a really rewarding experience because, if anything, it just generates a lot of discussion, uh, which is imperative when it comes to a silent epidemic. So. Um, we talked a lot, a lot about things that we've learned. What's something that you guys learned over the last year that's either shocked or surprised you? I've honestly learned a lot. Um, before we did the podcast, I knew the MMIW issue was epidemic level. But until we started researching cases and really looking into the numbers, I had no clue. Um, the most shocking thing to me, I think, is all the similarities of the cases that we cover mm-hmm. and all the issues that seem to come to the forefront in almost every single case. What about you, Ash? Yeah, same. I feel that I didn't have a concept of how big this epidemic was and how much it was a problem. It's almost as if you are an indigenous girl or woman, it's going to happen to someone you know or someone you love. I read a quote on our one of our podcasts that I covered in Alaska, and she was taught at a young age by her mother to just wear two pairs of pants when you go out at night to slow them down. And that's not normal. That should never be something that you're having to teach your young girls of any race. Um, but I think just the lack of resources that I've learned over this past year is truly heartbreaking. I think something else that really surprised me, too, is how little media coverage these MMIW cases get in comparison oh, to other cases. Absolutely. We don't like to you know, bring up a lot of the cases just because we don't want to make it seem like we're you know, upset that these cases got solved, but like Gabby Petito and Eliza Fletcher, cases were solved in days. And there are cases that have been unsolved um, for Indigenous women that are still unsolved years and years later. Uh, Like, for instance, last year, my cousin, Brittany, went missing. Uh, She went missing for over nine months before uh, she was found in California. Um, And my family struggled just to get her name on the news out there. So to think that it happened within days of Gabby Petito going missing and seeing the reaction and response to her, but my cousin Brittany couldn't get any kind of reaction or 
coverage, it just, it really hurts. It really kind of highlights the disparities that we see. Since you mentioned lack of media coverage, um, it's something I really struggled with in researching these cases. You know, it's getting to kind of be like a broken record because most of the time the information just isn't there. So we end up looking through the internet only to find some information reported maybe two or three times. Um, it's only a few sentences long. Can you guys talk a little bit more about the struggles you've had when researching these cases? Yeah, it is really hard to find information that actually helps tell a story. I always say that we are not investigative journalists. We don't go out, you know, interviewing people to try to get information. We literally just look on the internet to see what we can find. But there's hardly anything there. Um, sometimes we do have to put that investigative hat on and, you know, reach out to community members to try to get some sort of information because there's literally nothing. I always hate when I look into a case and the only thing that we can find is information about this woman's death. Um, in a lot of the cases, the information about these women and who they were is never shared. Yeah, it's very difficult and it's frustrating because these people mattered and the things that happened to them, you know, they're more than what brought them to their demise. It's, there were somebody, someone, you know, I talked about before that when we lose an indigenous sister, we lose everything about them and everything that they learned. The language keeper, the cultural and traditional medicine, as well as the traditions. All those things are lost when we lose someone to that tribe. You know, that's a very valuable asset. And so it's just hard to find stories of their life and how they lived and who they were and how valuable they were to their families and their friends and their tribe. And even just finding what happened to them is hard because Mm -hmm. there's just, there's a headline and there's maybe two paragraphs. So we're having to really search and search and search, but... Sometimes it's difficult and sometimes it's, that's why we have those meetings because we just don't have enough information to share a whole story. Sometimes it's just a cold case flyer. That's all we have to go off of. So it's been really difficult, but um, needed to get this information out. Now, Maggie, Osh, and I are all enrolled members of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. And I think over, we can pro- probably all agree, we've learned a lot about our own community in the last year. The EBCI doesn't have an official MMIW database, which is something I know that we want to work on. Um, but they did compile the most recent updated list. And I think when we started, it was about 17 or 18 names. Yeah. Uh, it's gone up to 32 names now on the EBCI MMIW list, seven of which are unsolved. Uh, 14 victims died by gunshot. And the age ranges from eight months old to 54 years old. So what are y'all's thoughts on these numbers? I mean, I think any statistic around MMIW is just, you know, really upsetting. But I think hearing these numbers, it just reassures me that as three indigenous EBCI members, we need to be telling these stories. I really hate that the numbers are so high for our own community. And I also hate that we recently added one more to that number. Yeah, I had no idea we had that many, no idea at all before we started this podcast. And so it's shocking to me that even in my own hometown, in my own tribe, I had no idea that these this many women were victims of cruelty. And so it's very shocking. And, the, you know, the one that breaks my heart is Lively Crew, who was eight months old. And that's hard to get over. I mean, even if you didn't know her, you know the family. And it's just hard to, it's, it ruins your day. It ruins your week. It just... That was a really hard one for me to hear. You know, what was interesting is we went to that sunrise uh, prayer circle and we had those elders, a lot of elders, uh, women talking about people who had gone missing when they were kids, you know, and it just goes 
puts it in perspective how long this has been going on and it's continuing today that we're still having these MMIW cases. So um, speaking of which, back in April, Maggie, you covered a local unsolved case about Marie Walking Stick. Um, I bring this up because in covering Marie's case, uh, we realized that her story has a lot of similarities to many of the other cases or the unsolved cases in MMIW. Can you speak on Marie's case just a little bit for perspective? Yes. So in March of this year, I covered a story of a local cold case where a woman's body was found in a burning vehicle in a rural area in the community. Marie Walkingstick was only 26 years old at the time of her death and left behind two children who she loved dearly. Family members of Marie are still haunted with her unsolved death as they don't even have the basic details regarding her death. Not to mention, the family believes that the person who committed this violent act is someone who is still in the community today and was very close to Marie. Marie's case encompasses a lot of the issues that we bring up that revolve around the MIW cases. For instance, issues with jurisdictional boundaries, domestic violence, and even some community barriers that we run into with the stories that we look into. Law enforcement officials have had a person of interest in this case for many years. However, due to the severity of the case, this investigation was handed over to the FBI. Once the case is in the hands of the FBI, it must be prosecuted by the Attorney General. In this specific case, despite circumstantial evidence, the Attorney General has declined to prosecute any person of interest without a confession. Marie's case has been passed through numerous hands in the nine years that it has been open, as well as many different district attorneys. The district attorney that originally had involvement in this case is actually no longer in the office. This is the troubling reality for many of the MIW cases that we cover. Well, if you think about it, I mean... They're not going to prosecute without a confession, but it's been nine years. So what's the likelihood someone's just going to come out and confess? Yeah, I think it's really low. So, you know, and this case is just sitting here. And what's even scarier is that if the family believes that somebody that's in our community that was close to her, this person is still in our community walking amongst us. And we just have no idea who it is, which is exceptionally scary. Yeah. And we've talked about it before, how jurisdictional issues make things so difficult. Um, tribal sovereignty is really beneficial in some instances, but mm-hmm. in this one, I think it makes solving these crimes pretty much impossible. Yeah. There is currently a $20,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for Marie's murder. Uh, we're a small community and somebody knows something. So if you have any information, no matter how small or insignificant you might think it is, please call the Cherokee Indian Police Department at 828-359-6600. Now, with that being said, let's go ahead and get into today's story, which covers the latest MMIW case reported for the EBCI that occurred just this year. Today, we are covering EBCI enrolled member Tina Walkingstick. I do want to mention before we get into her case today, that throughout this past year, we've learned that there's always more to these women than the tragic circumstances that happened to them. Well, I didn't know Tina personally. Um, those who did and are mourning her loss have had nothing but kind things to say about her. I didn't either. And, you know, every time I read a story about these women, I always feel like they're someone that I would have wanted to know. Um, and I hate that this, you know, tragic circumstance happened to her. I'm going to start the story by reading Tina's obituary. Okay. Tina Teeter Walkingstick Frizzell age 42, of Mountain City, Georgia, and formerly of Cherokee, was senselessly taken from her family and friends on the morning of May 15th, I'm sorry, May 16th, 2022, one day prior to her 43rd birthday. Born in Cherokee on May 17th, 1979, she was the daughter of Norman Walkingstick of Cherokee and Deborah Clure of New Orleans, Louisiana. 
She was preceded in death by her paternal grandfather, Joe Mike Walkingstick, Papaw Joe, paternal grandmother, Rosie Hornbuckle, Granny, and maternal grandparents, Albert Clore and Agnes Hastings Clore, who they called Mamaw. Having spent most of her childhood in Cherokee and partly in Lyman, Washington, Tina moved back to North Carolina as a teenager and lived there into her adulthood. Along her journey, she became interested in nature and anything having to do with mountains and rivers, whether it was hiking, camping, or fishing. Teeter loved to just sit and take in the scenery around her. She also loved to capture the beauty of the outdoors by taking photos. It would do Tina's heart good to be in the company of her loved ones with laughter. She had a unique laugh and a contagious smile. Having a good fire, listening to music was good for her soul. Her loved ones from Florida to Washington throughout the United States and native lands will always love Tina and miss her dearly. We don't know the circumstances that got Tina to where she was, you know, when this happened. But I think I just want to remind everybody that addiction or not, she mattered and she was loved by many people. And that goes for all of these women. Um, A lot of times what happens in the stories that we research is if they had issues with addiction or if they had issues with domestic violence, or maybe they stayed with the um, assaulter that they would kind of be written off yeah, um, and portrayed in a certain light. Like it's your fault. You yeah. You made those decisions and it, I just don't know how anyone could say that that's okay. Cause it's still a person. I think we just, as indigenous people and just people in general, we need to break the stigma of hide your shame you know, if something happens, you know, put on a put on a brave face, get over it, be tough. And in reality, boys and girls at a young age need to be taught that to share your feelings. If something bothers you or if something is not right, tell someone. And they shouldn't just be showed love. Not only told love, but showed it as well. And they always have the respect of themselves so that they can grow up to know what their boundaries should be. And we as adults know what is acceptable in our lives and the things that we're going to accept. You know, if we have the resources to communicate with whoever we need to communicate about our bad days so that we can overcome those. Because I think that we're just taught, just get over it, hide it. It's, it's shameful to look weak mm-hmm. and ask them for help. But as Cherokee people, we always want to help our community when someone is needing it. And I think that we need to get back to that because traditionally that's who we were. That's what Cherokee people do. Many of us knew Tina. Uh, we knew her family, we knew her friends. My husband went to high school with her, and when this news broke, he had just so many good stories to share of her. He remembered her, he remembered her smile, and when I seen a picture of her, I remembered her. You know, everyone has said that. Everyone yeah. just talks about and her smile. Mm-hmm. You see her picture, like, she's beautiful. Yes. I was like, oh my gosh, I bet she was a heartbreaker. <laughs> and um, because we were just a small child of 16,000 people, like, yeah, we all knew her family. Um, I coached one of her nieces in softball, and her mom is an excellent softball player. They're carrying on that tradition steals. They're still playing fast pitch. And we all know that she liked the, the outdoors. She loved <laughs> pictures. She loved hiking. And, I mean, we live in the most perfect place to do those things. And so she just um, took every opportunity that she had to be outdoors. Raven County, which is in Mountain City, Georgia, which is about an hour drive from Cherokee, is where she was living. In late May 2022, her brother Gregory Justice reported her missing to the local law enforcement agency. When authorities began their search for Tina, they discovered bone fragments and remains located at a residence off Mulberry Road in Macon County, which is just next door to us. For reference, Macon County is about an hour drive 
from Redmond County, like I said, so it's just next door. We travel there all the time. It was the closest Chick-fil-A for a while. <laughs> um, I remember reading this story when it first came out, and we didn't... I just remember seeing the post about they were looking for three people mm-hmm. uh, in regards to a possible murder. But, you know, then the information wasn't really shared about who it was or yeah. that it was a local woman. But I do remember when those headlines came out. I remember that, too. And then it was just kind of like it, what, official word never came out, but we just started hearing yeah. who it was. And it was like, wow, really? Was it? You know, like. Yeah, but no one could really confirm. You yeah. Know, it was just like rumor. In August, the bone fragments and remains were confirmed to be Tina through DNA evidence. Though because of how badly her body had been desecrated in a burn pit, it took longer to identify her. The police had to find her remains by digging through the burn pit, stating it was very a very difficult crime scene. Very tedious. Many of them worked throughout the night shift shifting through the fire pit, trying to find as many remains as they could. And I couldn't imagine that. I couldn't imagine shifting through a fire pit to find someone. Yeah. When you say that, it just kind of makes my heart drop, honestly. It turns my stomach for sure. During the investigation, it's believed she was murdered on May 16th of this year, one day before her 43rd birthday. The police stated that based on credible information, there were two locations that were possible crime scenes. Sheriff Robert Holland said in May that the first crime scene was a location where the missing person was last seen, and the second is where the missing person's remains were located. The police believe Tina was shot in a shed in South Trapassi Road near the Raven County border, and then her body was moved to an encampment off Mulberry Road where she was burned. So there was motive. They shot her. And they moved her. It was mm-hmm. an accident. Because if it was an accident, you'd have called somebody. You'd have called the police. You'd have called for help. Have the police uh, gave, gave us a reason why? Not yet. Not yet. The investigation is still ongoing. Mm-hmm. Christopher Shield of Odo, North Carolina, early in the investigation, was identified as a person of interest and eventually charged with kidnapping. Three other individuals were also arrested in connection to the disappearance of Tina. Derek McCracken, Jessica Smith, and Lenore Wilson. McCracken and Smith were at first held in Raven County Detention Center after they were arrested and Shield was taken to Raleigh pending a positive identification of the remains. Once the remains were positively identified, the Macon County Grand Jury held evidence in the case and issued additional indictments for Shields, McCracken, Wilson, and Smith related to the murder of Tina. Christopher Shields faces charges of first-degree murder, destroying human remains, felony conspiracy to commit murder, concealing a death and possession of firearm by a felon, following his arrest in May. Shield was also charged with five counts of kidnapping, three counts of assault by pointing a gun, assault and battery in possession of a firearm by a felon. So he's committed crimes before. I wonder what crimes he's been com- convicted of before to be a felon. I wonder if they were violent crimes. <clears throat> I'm not sure. I really, I just don't have much respect for Christopher Shields. But but maybe something we can follow up on. Jessica Smith faces charges of accessory after the fact of first-degree murder, concealing a death, destroying human remains, and conspiracy to commit murder. Smith turned herself into Macon County law enforcement on May 23rd when she was charged with first-degree kidnapping, assault with a deadly weapon, and disturbing or desecrating human remains. Derek McCracken is currently being held in Raven County Jail after being arrested on May 23rd. He is charged with desecration of a corpse, 
He will also face charges of accessory after the fact and first-degree murder, concealing a death, destroying human remains, and felony conspiracy to commit murder. Sheriff Holland stated he is currently fighting extradition in the state of Georgia in Raven County, and as soon as the process is complete, he will be sent back to Macon County to face these charges. Lenore Wilson faces charge of two counts of conspiracy to commit first-degree kidnapping. She was arrested on May 24th and is currently being held in Macon County Detention Center. The investigators do have a motive for the homicide, but they're not able to discuss it at this time, hmm. at pending the court cases, which is rightfully so. Yeah, that makes sense. The police department was contacted with tips and information by many members of the public in relation to this investigation, and they suspect there may be more people out there with information that could help. And they're encouraging people to reach out to the Macon County Sheriff's Office. Sheriff Holland stated they're still conducting interviews and working to gather all the evidence to make a strong case. You know, that that's always the case, though, in a lot of these instances. Like, for instance, the case we covered where, I don't remember her name, but she was in the vehicle with her boyfriend, and she was crying and upset, and that was the last time she was seen alive. Ashley Aldrich. Yeah. You know, that was the last time she was seen alive, and people recall that, but no one reported it, no one checked up on her, and that information is still just kind of out there. But there has to be other people that saw her. Yeah, well, she also had a very long history of domestic violence like horrific domestic violence with her boyfriend at the time. So there is information out there. Like they're saying, they think more mm-hmm. people witness this and people just aren't coming forward. Which I, don't, I just don't understand. I don't either. Mm-mm, me neither. It is rare that we share a story with some type of closure. And in sharing these stories, it is never easy to read. It's not easy for us to learn and share these stories because they are full of sadness and heartbroken families that should never have to share these stories and they should never have those feelings. Because people should never treat other people this way. We all matter. Even though not much information is available at the moment for Tina's story, it is recent and it sounds like the police department did an excellent job in the initial investigation and bringing charges and people of interest forward. So I want to commend them on a good job so far and thank them for taking this seriously because sometimes a lot of these NMIW cases aren't treated that way. No. Her family has some type of closure and it looks like justice will be served and I hope that it is. We will be following their court cases closely. To Tina's family, you are in our prayers, and we love you guys. We can express or put into words what you guys are going through. We love you, and know that Tina was loved by me, a beautiful person with a beautiful smile. Our tribe lost another tribal member. We lost someone who was a best friend. Siblings lost their sisters. Parents lost their daughter. And two children lost their mother. And if that doesn't touch your heart, and put yourself in their shoes. And love everyone, and let's just be kind to everyone, because we're all just trying to get through this thing called life. And we just need to support and love one another, protect each other, and look out for one another. Especially as Cherokee people. Yes. So, in closing to Tina's story, I would like to read some testimonials that I received in, to, in regards to who she was as a person. Many people knew Tina in our community, and many people shared stories about who she was as a person and their fond memories of her. When news broke of her murder, my Facebook feed was flooded with people sharing their condolences and people describing what a fun, loving, and carefree person Tina was. We at We Are Resilient try to make it a point to humanize the victims of these crimes by sharing about who these women were as people, because a lot of times these women's stories end up being reduced to what happened to cause their death instead of describing the kind of person that we are now missing. The first time I met Tina was at a party. Towards the end, I was upstairs and I looked down and there were maybe two or three people still dancing. She was one of them. Arms stretched out and ascending, eyes closed, smiling that smile. Just looked completely immersed in the music and the moment. 
I think the thing that everyone immediately identifies with her was her smile. She was always smiling, and it was truly radiant. I want Tina to be remembered for her kindness. When we met, she was beautiful, outgoing, an upperclassman, and I was only a shy freshman, but also brand new to the school district. Tina saw something in me that I didn't yet see in myself, so she kept trying to show me that I too could make friends as easily as she did. She lived a few miles from me, so if she passed by the bus stop while I was standing there, she would always stop to give me a ride and would often offer to take me home after school. I always admired her and wished I had been able to tell her about all the happy memories I have of her and how she made me feel when I was the most vulnerable. She honestly treated everyone she encountered like a longtime friend, even if they had just met. I can still remember seeing Tina for the first time. I was a freshman, and she was a senior at Smoky Mountain High School. I remember wanting to meet her because I thought she seemed so cool, and then happy to discover that she was already friends with my brother, so our paths eventually crossed. Her unique and independent spirit drew me to her, and I was in awe of how seemingly confident she seemed, and I wanted to feel the confidence and self-assurance she conveyed. Over the next several years, I got to know Tina well, and I am happy to be able to have called her my friend. Tina was truly what one would define as a free spirit. I do not think that anyone that knew Tina would object to that definition of her. But she was more than a free spirit. She personified it. She was a mother, a wife, a sister, a friend. She always seemed to be smiling. She loved to hug, to dance, to be outdoors, by a fire, music, traveling. She was proud to be Cherokee, proud of her children, proud of her friends, and a talented photographer. Life can be hard, and she unfortunately succumbed to life's hardship. But I want people to know that she was independent, loving, brave, unique, talented, beautiful, wild, and smart. She was uniquely Tina. Those are beautiful. So beautiful. And it's so hard to read. Yeah. You know, and the common thing here is that her smile and that she was just a free spirit and was welcoming to anybody and, and so wanted to be friends. Loving. Yes. Oftentimes, you know, we get asked about what someone can do to help and what... We always say when it comes to MMIW is to start the conversation and to talk about it and share the information. It's a silent epidemic for a reason because nobody's talking about it. And for cases like this, you know, Tina's Tina's story, there is a little bit of justice in it. There are people in custody, but justice is not served until these people are sentenced. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, you know, you'll hear about these stories when they first come out and, you know, people will be arrested, but then sometimes they don't always get convicted. And that's really where justice is served. So that's why we bring awareness to these stories that are seemingly solved because they're really not yet. No, or the sentences are very, very light. Um, You know, the first case we covered was Savannah uh, Greywind. And um, she was murdered. Um, her baby was cut from her womb. Uh, fortunately, the baby survived. But the people involved, um, the man only got like 20 years. So he'll be 50 years old by the time he gets out of jail. So it's just... It just doesn't seem fair. No, not at all. To know that people in our community lost someone like this. It's such a senseless act. Mm-hmm. To know what the motive is. And we hope that they get the maximum sentencing. But we know that... It may not be the case based off of trends of what we've, what we've learned from MIW cases, but hearing those testimonies really, really got me because it really brings into perspective who Tina was. The legacy that she leaves behind, she's more than just what happened to her. She was a beautiful person. She's loved and she's very, very much missed. 
by more than just her family and friends. So I hope that our listeners uh, take something away from the testimonials and remember Tina as who she was. And not the circumstances that happened to her. Okay. And with that, we want to thank the Western Carolina University and staff here at the Bardo Art Center for inviting us here today and for giving us a platform to speak on our stolen sister. Uh, We're grateful for the opportunity and grateful to give people a chance to know who Tina was. Thank you. Thank you for listening to We Are Resilient. For links to information found for this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at We Are Resilient Podcast. Send us an email at weareresilientpod at gmail.com or visit us at www.war-podcast.com.